take our Bibles, if you would. We are in 1 Samuel, and we're at chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Rebecca is going to read for us this morning. So if you would get your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And uh, if you didn't have your Bible, we have Bibles in the back. You're welcome to pick one up. Um, and uh, we can follow the reading on the screen if you'd like. But let's stand together and read 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great, small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken, Ahinoam and of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. While well, we made a raid against the Negev, the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down with, from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. 
Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has pre preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would, who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziglag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It has been, it, ha, it was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev in Jatur, in Aror, in Sifmouth, in Eshtemoa, in Rechel, in the cities of the Jermelahites, in the cities of the Kenites, the Horma, in Borashan, in Atash, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, Lord, this story that will help us understand so much about you and about us, and Lord, how awesome you are, uh, and how gracious you are, and Lord, how kind you are, and yet, at the same time, how real life is and how difficult uh, life is that you've called us to live. Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight. Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to, to mold and to shape our hearts so that we can be conformed to your Son, Jesus Christ. And if, if there are those that are here that do not know you, Lord, I ask that your gospel uh, would, would scream from this text of your kindness and your goodness and your deliverance. Would you have your way with us, Lord? Allow me simply to be your mouthpiece, to reflect your truth, and Lord, to allow it to, to go forward uh, with power and with purpose. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin here with a question. When do you know that you're having a bad day? What does it look like? How would you identify that? Is it when you get a flat tire? Is it when you get that dreaded piece of mail that says you have jury duty? Is it when you're stuck in traffic, hitting every red light on your route to work, and of course you're running late? Is it when it seems like life is piling on top of you in so many ways? I like how Amos paints a picture for us. I want you to think about this verse, Amos chapter five and verse 19. As if a man fled from a lion, that's a good thing, and a bear met him, it's not a good thing. And so he runs away ultimately from a bear, it says, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. So here, here's the picture, you're running away from a lion and you're getting away from a lion, but you run into a bear. 
And so you start running away from the bear and you go to find safety in your house only to be bitten by a snake. Friends, that's a bad day. That's a rough day. And and David, as we come to this chapter and his men are about to experience a bad day that is only going to get worse. He and his men have been sent home from the ensuing battle between Israel and the Philistines, having been delivered by God through suspicious commanders and a gullible king, now with relief from their predicament, that means the fighting against their own people with the Philistine army, they make their 60-mile journey from Aphek to Ziklag. Now let's put some things in perspective. I checked on Google Maps this week from Castro Valley to Santa Cruz Boardwalk is 60 miles. So they walked from Castro Valley all the way down to Santa Cruz. How many of you would enjoy that walk? That's the perspective here. For three days, they are walking in the wilderness to get to Ziklag. And when they arrive at this city, their world turns upside down. They have been able to run from the lion and managed to evade the bear, but when they got home, the snake was slithering away, having caused some devastating destruction. And friends, it's at times like this when God's leaders rise up and shepherd their people. So the question before us today is this. Will David, the leader, or be the leader that God is calling him to be? Will he take advantage of the dreadful situation before him and lead his ragtag flock? Will he only think of himself or will his mind be on the responsibilities he has as God's anointed king? Will his flock follow his leadership or will they turn on him and blame him for their suffering? Will he react with full-blooded emotions and retaliate like he was ready to do with Nabal and his men? Or will he turn to God? How will David do? Will he succeed or will he fail? Will God's chosen servant prove worthy or prove to be a failure just like Saul? So what we have before us in 1 Samuel 30 is what I'm calling a test of David's leadership. David has been in training, so to speak, all this time, starting from chapter 16, moving into 17, all this time has been training and preparation. He has been anointed God's king, but there was already a king on the throne whose name was Saul, the people's chosen king, And and since his victory with Goliath and his victories against the Philistines and Saul turning against him, he has been pursued over and over and over again. And there's been lots of really bad situations. People had died as a result of his choices. And he, he now has a responsibility, not only for the 600 men he has, but if you remember, for all their families and all their stuff. So from the protection of the flock in the hills of Bethlehem where he's fighting against lions and bears to the cat and mouse wilderness wanderings, David has been in training and his test, this test, will establish him among his people. So if we have our chronology correct, 
you remember, these chapters kind of bounce back and forth because they're comparing David with Saul, and so we've got to kind of land the chronology. On the day when Saul is being killed in battle, which would be the next chapter, chapter 31, David is arriving at Ziklag. Now, it's, I don't know that it's necessarily significant to the story, but it is, it is interesting because as one king is dying, another king is rising up. Another king has to go through his own trial and prove himself worthy. Now, my son is a Marine. All you Marines say what? All right, just, just, just grunt. If you're a Marine, just grunt. It's okay. It sounds official, all right? But in the Marines, boot camp, there's a thing at the end of boot camp, and it's called the crucible. And it's basically where all the things that you've learned are played out. And for three days, specifically 54 hours, this Marine, along with his fellow Marines, have to endure all these different trials. They're actually competing with one another, and it is a test. They must pass in order to gain that status of a Marine, to get their pin, so to speak. So there's, there's something about this crucible that is really important. It tests every recruit physically, mentally, and morally. It involves 45 miles of marching, food and sleep deprivation, living out in the elements, as well as a personal uh, uh, exercising those personal team skills. It is the defining experience of recruit training. And here we have David that I would say is experiencing his crucible. This is where he's put to test. And he's been put to test a number of times through his wilderness wanderings, but now it's coming to a head. This is gonna be a time where his leadership is gonna be on display and he's gonna have to endure, he's gonna have to face this trial that's before him. In fact, he will be stretched emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, physically, and morally. And we will see the story unfold in four sections that I'm calling David's distress, his direction, his deliverance, and then his delight. His distress, his direction, his deliverance, and his delight. Let's first pay attention now to David's distress. The narrator of 1 Samuel doesn't take much time to get into the action and the tension of the story. In fact, in other chapters, you, you know, we'd, we'd have like six verses of kind of set up. All these things are happening before he gets into the story. But this, this kind of goes right out, right from the start. We find out this raiding that's taking place. Again, picking up at verse one now. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev, that's the south, and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So listen, what, what a way for an army glorious, gloriously delivered by God uh, to come home to their city. What was supposed to be a you know, a glad reuniting with families and a city that they had established to be theirs turned into a day of shock and emptiness and helplessness and disaster. The city that they had labored to establish is burned with fire. And it's interesting, as, as I was reading this passage in preparation, not knowing I was gonna be in Murphy's this week, and just seeing the panic of the people 
and, and seeing the, the, the people pulling over, it's seriously just tearful because they had just walked away from their homes, not knowing if they would ever see those homes again. You get a, you get a glimpse of the kind of, kind of feelings that were going through the men at this point in time. Their beloved families are all gone. Now, where did they go? Well, we have the privilege of having a narrator. And the narrator tells us it was the Amalekites. But David doesn't have that privilege. He does not know. His men do not know. All they see before them is a city smoldering in the aftermath of a raid. And thousands of footprints in the sand leading out of the city. So what will David and his men do? How will they respond? How will they cope? Whom do you fight? Who is your enemy? Where do you turn? Just try and put yourself in their shoes, so to speak. They They don't know who did this. But they know that someone did. Had Saul somehow raided in the south? Had the Philistines somehow deceived David at his own game? Or is there another answer? You know, in times like that, you're asking lots of questions. Who did this? Remember 9-11? It's like, well, who did this? And people were jumping to conclusions and saying, well, it's this, and it's this, and it's this, and we ought to go get them. Well, we don't know who the them is yet. But you understand the feeling. I mean, there's just incredible feelings that take place here. And so we see this, this rawness of suffering and war played out as we read verses 4 and 5. We see that David is just a man. He's just a husband at heart. And David and the, the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of, widow of Nabal of Carmel. So David's sorrow, get this, is just like every other man in his troop. He's lost his own wives, and the men have lost their wives and their children. Some say that the fact that they're still alive is a small mercy. It's a small mercy, but you know what happens to captives who are taken alive. Uh, Usually one of two things. Either they are abused or they're sold into slavery. That's not a great prospect, is it? In fact, some people say better that they're dead than they actually end up there. So David is weeping just like his men for his own personal loss to the point that his strength is gone. Have you ever been there? You've experienced a trial, you've experienced a loss, you've experienced a suffering, and you've wept so much that you cannot even weep anymore because you just don't have the energy to cry. And for many people, this, this is the place where despondency turns into depression. This is where limp bodies and stone faces stare into nothingness. This is where many turn to alcohol or some other kind of drug to numb the pain, to forget their sorrow. And, and there's a sense in which we can understand that. Because they just don't want to face it anymore. And friends, these are the kind of experiences that people go through. This is the kind of suffering that every generation will experience in some fashion. Now we're seeing it in the news today, aren't we? We're seeing it as, as, as we observe blank stares of men who are listening to their crimes of being a Christian waiting for the executioner's blade to sever their head from their body. We're seeing it played out when the, the, the weeping of Syrian refugees whose families have been ripped apart as they seek safety 
away from evil armies. It may not be happening here in the Bay Area, but it's happening in the world. People are suffering and they're going through great turmoil. So friends, let's not forget that living in a sin-cursed world is, much of the time, a very dangerous and heartbreaking place to live. Sorrow and suffering abound. Death, pain, and weeping are far too often commonplace. And it's also a reminder that, that our comfortable utopian view of Christianity is truly unrealistic. Following Christ will include suffering, it will include struggles, it will include tears. To think that God's servants are immune from such tragic and, uh, and trials and persecutions is really a pipe dream of the American church's health, wealth, and prosperity crowd. This is the kind of world in which we're living in, friends. And we must be willing to acknowledge that, that God brings about trials and suffering in his children to bring him glory, to further his preordained sovereign plan, and to develop us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Now remember, we've got to get our thinking right, that this world right now, as the old saying goes, is not my home. I'm just passing through. But in our selfishness, we want to pass through enjoying life. But when we have the understanding of what is yet before us, this life is just but a vapor. Changes our perspective. And so when we, we hear this, this preaching and teaching of you know, health, God wants you to be healthy, he wants you to be wealthy, he doesn't want you to suffer, that's not what scripture teaches. God's people go through suffering. And you know what? The church may be gearing up for going through further and further suffering. And if we have our theology wrong, we're gonna be fighting against God in our thinking because we haven't taken time to learn what God says by virtue of his revelation, his word. We must be prepared. That's David's weeping, and then we see David's distress ultimately in verse six. Not only was David suffering personal grief and sorrow, he was enduring the anger of many of his men. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. There's a sense in which, friends, we understand what's going on and why. People are, these men are bitter. They've lost so much. This is how, how people respond in their grief. They are angry and they're looking for someone to blame. Always looking for someone to blame. but they're turning to David and they're ready to stone him. You can imagine the things that they're saying in their suffering grief. David, it's your fault that all this happened. David, you're the one that took us to Aphek away from Ziklag and left our people defenseless. You must have offended God for this to happen. See, when people are struggling with grief and heartache and difficulty and, and they've experienced this great turmoil. They're looking for someone to blame and they come up with all reasons and, and answers that may not be true, as if they're true. And then they pour out their anger and their frustration and their emotions on that person. So this is David's distress. 
Here he is, the leader of 600 fighting men and their families, and he is in the depths of distress. But now notice David's direction. David was not above suffering. He was not above the suffering of his men. In other words, he didn't think himself any better than them, but he did understand that he was their leader. And he had to stand up against those who were his sheep, but were responding to their loss by blaming him. We don't know how many voted in favor of stoning David. We don't know who had the stones in their hands. But something happens in the story that changes everything. Notice, first of all, David's strength. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the midst of distress, David turns to God to find strength. I mean, in the face of of men with, with rocks in their hands, David doesn't turn to his own skill and his agility. He turns to find strength in God. And when God's children are in crisis, they need to find their strength in the Lord. But what does it mean to strengthen oneself in the Lord? To answer that question, we need to be saying, first of all, what does it not mean? So let's talk about what does it not mean. It does not mean treat God like he's a a genie that you rub in your time of crisis. So it isn't like treating God as if as if somehow you can, you can pop him into your experience there and he's there to, to, to meet all your needs. You know, God will take care of all your needs. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And for many people, it's like, God, I'm rubbing and you need to come to my rescue. And of course, they're thinking, and you need to come to my rescue the way I want it to happen. It doesn't mean that Christ is your personal pain reliever. It doesn't mean that you're going to get this quick zap from God so you can face your day. In other words, that David was going to be strengthening the Lord and somehow he was just going to go and he was going to take on these men that were going to stone him. It isn't about realizing that things are so hard that you will turn to religion in some way. It doesn't mean that you let go and let God as if you're simply venting your frustration to God and then saying, okay, Now I'm finding strength in you because I vent it. Or simply talking to others about your struggle. Friends, one can cry tears and vent emotions and yet not be strengthened in the Lord. So what does it mean? And I think we have some clues from this passage. First of all, I would say this. It means this, remembering your personal faith in God. Did you notice what it said there? It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, what? His God. In other words, David recognized that he had a personal faith in the God of Israel. Dale Davis captures this well when he says the following. There was ever a danger in Israel of holding to the official covenant faith without having a vital personal faith. In other words, Signing on the dotted line that you agree 
with the covenant relationship, but not personally having that covenant relationship. And there's a, there's a challenge for us all, isn't it? To say, well, we agree with what Gateway Bible Church stands for. We agree with the theology and the teaching of the Word of God, but we don't have a personal relationship with Christ. You can have both things, or you can just have one. So God is the God of Israel, but is the Lord your shepherd? We may affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, but is Jesus the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me? So it's not just theory, it's reality. So first of all, remembering your personal faith in God. Secondly, remembering the promises of God. Think back to the last time in David's life where we find a similar expression. We want to turn back there, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. David is interacting with Jonathan, his covenant friend, who was the son of Saul. And at this time, Saul was out trying to kill David. And here is what it says. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And what happened in that context is that David is encouraged and strengthened by listening to the affirmation of God's promise that was given to him um, as his anointed king and After that, it was given to him a couple of times, but it was a reminder of what God was going to do in and through him. So the the, the second principle here, after we're saying remembering your personal faith in God, is to remember the promises of God that are truly yours. So what, what encouraged David, what strengthened David, was to go back to the promise that God had given him, that he was going to be Israel's king. And the last thing, I would say this. He is accessing the presence of God. This is what happens next. David turns to God in prayer through Abiathar, the priest. Now friends, it's important for us to ask ourselves the same questions. Where do we turn to in times of crisis, trouble, or despair? What drives us to turn to Christ while we are in the pit? Do we find our strength in God? Many of you probably have Um, have heard about the whole Ashley Madison stuff that's been going over the past uh, few weeks now. And uh, this week I I read an article that was really sad. It was about a a pastor and a seminary professor by the name of Pastor John Gibson. And apparently his name came up on the Ashley Madison adultery site hack list. And he was so devastated that he ended up taking his life. And his family was interviewed on TV And they were asked this question, do you think that he took his life because of the likelihood of shame of his sin being exposed and the prospect of losing his job? And the family responded, yes. He would have lost his job and we would agree with that. And it would have been shameful and that is understandable. But we wouldn't, or he wouldn't have lost his God and Savior Jesus Christ and he wouldn't have lost his family. We would have found a way through this. But you see, when, when you're in this, in this depths of crisis, sometimes you don't have the wherewithal to think about really how you can get through this. 
This is what distress does. This is, these are the places that it takes us. And God is saying to us through David's example, in the midst of your deepest distress, whatever it might be, in his sense, in his case, it was sin being exposed, losing a job, um, bringing shame to his family. There's still a way forward, and it's through God. It's by finding strength in him. And that's why if someone in our context were to go through some similar circumstances, Maybe it's adultery, maybe, it's, uh, maybe they're falling in, in some other way. As a church, we come around them and say, listen, God is a forgiving God, but you must confess your sin. And when you do that, guess what? You can find your strength in the Lord. There's a way forward. And it's a way that brings glory to God. So in times of crisis, we must remember that our God is personal, he gives us promises, and we can access his presence. And notice David's counsel, divine counsel here. There's divine strength, there's divine counsel. David found strength in the Lord, but he didn't stop there. He also wanted to find out what God thought about his predicament, and he was seeking guidance as to what to do next. So this is what we read next, verse seven. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought uh, the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. And here's what he asks. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he, that's God, answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And just kind of hang your hat on those two words, overtake and rescue. And so David asked God for direction here, and he's given this specific instruction as he uses the ephod. But see, as Christians, we don't have Abiathar. We don't have the ephod, so what are we to do? Well, we must remember that we have a priest who is greater than Abiathar. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then in verse 16 of the same chapter, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in the same sense, we don't have to go to Abiathar, we can go directly to Jesus himself. We can come boldly to that throne of grace. And when we come, we find grace to help in times of need. So the answers that we may get to our questions may not be specific to our situation. But we will receive grace to help. We may not get that specific answer, but we will need strength to stand up during our trials. And we'll need endurance to face what lies ahead. And, and sometimes as we do that, as we open up God's word, there are principles that will give us answers that will be more specific because we're applying God's truth. We're exercising biblical wisdom by virtue of God's Holy Spirit and how God works through his word to, to mold and to shape our hearts. Now we continue to read verse nine. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who are too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. David here is being obedient. Right? God didn't say pursue the Amalekites. He doesn't know it's the Amalekites yet. At least the text doesn't tell us that. 
But what we do know is that you are to pursue. So the question is, where can he find those responsible for raiding Ziklag? See, when tribes raided like this, they didn't leave their calling card in the town square. It would seem, however, that David either had a sense of where the raiders were coming from, maybe he had good trackers, maybe he had the ability to kind of um, you know, think through who it might be and came to a conclusion, but that was all part of God's divine guidance and providence. But notice in this story, God said, pursue, and then he further said, you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So God's hand was still at work, and enter now the story, an abandoned Egyptian slave. The hand of God's providence to guide David's next steps. Friends, there is no accident here. This is not coincidence. Be sure David needs this specific guidance from God through this most unlikely individual. So we have here David's strength, David's counsel, but then we also have this divine providence that's revealed to us through this Egyptian slave. Notice that he's famished. And so what, do they, what does David do? He doesn't beat the truth out of him. What does he do? He, he feeds him. He gives him something to drink, and he treats him well. And then he comes to him with questions. And as he comes to him with questions, the abandoned slave begins to, to respond. Look at verse, verse 13 now. It says, and David said to him, to, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant of, of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. So here is a throwaway slave. Now just think about this. If you've just raided the whole region and a whole city and carried off a whole bunch of people that are gonna be slaves, you can probably throw one away who's sick. That's kind of the picture of what's going on here. But he says three days ago this happened. So what happened in Ziklag then took place the same day that David was leaving Aphek, just putting some things together. Then he goes on, verse 14, we made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against which that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burn Ziklag with fire. Now the, the we here is not so much me talking about the Egyptian slave. He's a slave. The we is the Amalekites, who were his masters. So now David knows who his culprits are. So just, just see how this played out. David found strength in the Lord, his God, then he also purposely inquired of the Lord what he should do and the direction and the counsel was pursue and you will overtake and you will restore or recover. And now through divine providence, he's given the specific answer from one who was actually part of that raiding party. So here is this famished Egyptian who's an abandoned slave who now becomes a divine guide so with some assurances from David, the Egyptian man leads David and his men to where the Amalekites are, verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. 
So you can imagine his, David and his men coming to this brink where they could see this land covered with the Malachites. And what are they doing? They are celebrating. They're having one big party. Now, friends, it's important to see that David had oriented himself in the direction of his God. And in so doing, gained strength from the Lord. He also took time to inquire of the Lord to seek his counsel, unlike Saul, who inquired of the Lord and found what? Silence. Because of his disobedience. Because of his rejection of God. David, however, is given both direction and a promise. Pursue and you will overtake and rescue. And add to that God's providential guidance of this Egyptian slave. So we have here this this big picture of how God ministers to his children. There's nothing really mystical about this at all. This This is God working out his will and his plan. So when we are in a crisis, when we're in trouble, when we're in distress... We must first run to the right place, leaning on our God and Savior. Secondly, we must open up his word and commune with him in prayer. And he will show us what we need for that moment. Not necessarily in specific ways, but in in principles and assurances. And finally, we must allow God's providence to help us on our way. And God often places people across our paths to help us. Now again, you don't have to get too mystical here, but it can come through a family member, a friend, a coworker, your pastor, an elder, a sermon you're listening to, a brother or sister in Christ that you were not expecting to see. I think the, the truth is though we can usually recognize God's providence when we look at it in hindsight. Ah, God put this person and this person and this person in place. Again, just referring to the wedding I did yesterday how things all happened, came together, how God's hand just just opened up opportunities and doors for for this actually to go from nothingness and maybe some discouragement and disappointment to a day of great celebration because of God's providence through people, their kindness and their generosity. So if you find yourself in the hospital, for example, It can be a nurse that really went out of her way to make you feel comfortable. Just place that that, that nurse just to say, I'm here if you need me. Not just kind of in a technical way, but in a real way. Or you're struggling really with your diagnosis and there's a doctor that comes in and he's willing to be brutally honest and, and give you the real story of what's going on. That's divine providence at work. Or maybe you're struggling financially and and so what happens is that um You may find a lead in finding a new job through talking to someone that you just happened to bump into. Or maybe you get a check uh, from someone in the church in the mail and it just arrives at the right time. Or maybe there's a bag of groceries that are showing up. This is all part of God's divine providence as you are facing the trial or as you're in the trial. God communicates and counsels us and gives us strength through his providence. So these are small providential encouragements to help us on our way. But now let's think about David's deliverance. David's deliverance. David quickly rouses his men for battle and they surprise the Amalekites who were not expecting them. So consumed in their victory and celebrations, they're oblivious to the danger 
that is descending on them, and we can see that David and his men accomplished three objectives. It comes clearly in these few verses. First of all, verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Now the numbers here give us some perspective. How many men did David have with him at this point in time? Remember, he left 200 at the brook. So now there's 400 men. And as the story unfolds here, we're told that David went in, struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. All right? So you have this 24-hour period um, or longer that's going on here that he's striking these people down. And how many people escaped? 400 men because they had camels. Now that comparison lets us know. It's like, almost like, oh, this huge army here was you know, slaughtered by David because only 400 men got away. It gives us perspective about how powerful the routing was that day with David's army. Now God promised that if David pursued, he and his men would overcome. And that is exactly what takes place. The second word would actually be two words. Verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Again, this is an amazing feat to recover all of the goods whether small or great, to rescue all their wives and children. This was a great success for David that was brought about by God. Now God had promised David that he would overcome and that he would surely, what's the next word? Rescue. And that's exactly what takes place. But that's not all that happened. Not only did he strike down the army and rescue his people and all their goods. Notice verse 20. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So the third thing that's happening here is that David is capturing the spoils of the raiders raiding. Remember, they didn't just raid Ziklag. They also raided other places. And so there was all this spoil from all these other places that were there for the taking. And that's what they're calling here David's spoil. So now they're they're celebrating this victory. They're celebrating how, how David, as their leader, led this army into this, you know, into this this camp and and routed these people, only 400 guys getting away, but not only did they restore their families, restore their own stuff, they also had all the booty from all the raiding that took place by the Amalekites in that area. See, David at one point in time was standing facing rocks. Now he is beginning his journey back as the hero, as the captain as the celebrated one. This is David's spoil. People are celebrating. Now notice David's delight. David's delight. 
but a day of deliverance it had been. But it had been two days of vigorous fighting. Hard work, gathering the spoils, herding the cattle. It was a day of celebration and reunion, but it would not be without its own complications. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David. Now just back off there a little bit. That's three days of journey plus some journey out of Ziklag. It's understandable. If I were in this story, I don't even know I would have made it to the brook. I'm saying that this was hard work. So here we are, these, he comes to these men, and they went out to meet David, to meet the people who were with him. In other words, their own family that had been recovered by this whole army and band that went into battle. And when David came near, the people greeted him. That's kind of an understatement. I think there's a great celebration that's going on there. But then, isn't it interesting that even in success, man's flesh rises up and exposes the desires of his heart? Notice verse 22. I'm calling this perverted grace. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. The expression wicked and worthless, friends, is not new to 1 Samuel, is it? It refers to the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, because of their behavior in God's house, how they treated the sacrifices with contempt, how they had sexual relations with the women who were serving in that place. It is also used to describe some of the men who despised Saul when Saul was, was put up to be king of Israel. Specifically, there were men who were worthless fellows who despised Saul and spoke out against him saying, how can this man save us? Now, ultimately, they would be justified, but their behavior is described as being worthless and wicked. It is also used to describe the character of Nabal by his servant and even his wife, Abigail, when she's speaking to David. Isn't it interesting that even among David's men now, after such a great celebration, that there are these worthless fellows and these wicked men that rise up and begin to think selfishly and begin to uh, think in a self-serving, self-righteous way And here's what they're saying. Hey, only the people who go into battle are to share the spoils of the battle. That's the way it is in war. You stay behind, you don't get anything. We who are the warriors, we went out and worked. We're the ones that put our lives on the line. We deserve the spoils. Okay, get your wives, get your children, but we're going to divide the rest among ourselves. Thank you very much. See, we did all the work. All you did was get tired and wait at the brook. All you get is your family back. Only the real soldiers, the true fighters of David, get the spoils. What we have here, friends, is man's natural attitude of merit. That one must earn the right to receive a blessing. 
So what are we talking about here? We're not talking about the restored families or the recovered goods of property that belong to those families. We're talking here about David's spoil. That is to say, the rest of the spoil that was gathered from all these other places that the Amalekites raided. So they're saying if you, don't, if you didn't fight, you don't have the right to the spoils. And friends, do you, do you see what is happening in the story? Friends, it's an attitude that can be present in the church as well. It's an attitude that comes, to, comes at us in two ways. So I wanna talk first of all about pre-salvation and then we'll talk about post-salvation. Pre-salvation, it basically says this, you must work your way up to God by your good deeds. In other words, those who deserve to have life with Christ, those who deserve to enter into heaven must prove their worth by their works, by their deeds, by what they have done. That is pursuing salvation by your merit. It's pursuing your salvation by things like your church attendance and your generosity and your hospitality and your love. That God will judge you by your good deeds, by your merit. So keep working. Keep striving, keep trying to impress God, and eventually you might do enough to earn the spoils of grace. Isn't that what we hear in so many places? I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And I'm hoping that one day, eventually, I'll get to the place where God will say, come in. Post-salvation, it says something completely different. We say, now that you have your ticket to heaven, God really wants you to work hard at maintaining your holy status by doing lots of Christian religious things. Make sure you're reading your Bible four chapters a day. And don't ever skip or forget. Make sure you're praying daily on your knees. And don't you know, the larger your calluses are, the more godly you are. Make sure you're serving in as many ways as you can in the church. A faithful Christian is a busy working Christian. And we can go on and on and on. And what happens is we enter into this relationship with Christ, but our view of sanctification is so distorted that we think now we have to somehow impress Christ over and over again. When the tools that God has given us as a means by maintaining and growing in our relationship with him have now become objects of merit to somehow say, see God, I read my four chapters. See God, I prayed even on my knees. And I prayed longer today. I prayed for hours. I remember when I was preparing for ministry in college and you'd, you'd read about these, these pastors from years ago and they would get up at 5.30 in the morning and they'd be on their knees for four hours and you're just like, man, how? So I'd get up at 5.30 and I'd be on my knees for like 10 minutes and I'm just like, there's something wrong here. Come to find out a little later on that some of those examples are, are stretched. It's called that uh, evangelistic elasticity. You know, you take a story and you, you stretch it a little bit and they weren't on their knees necessarily for all that time. They were in a, in a mode of worship and study and prayer 
And now that I've become a pastor, I realize that's the, the normal fare of what a pastor is doing with the Bible open and wrestling over the word of God and communing with God all that time. But see, we can turn something that is good into something that might, we, we say, is legalistic. That is a, a really an effort for me to, to say to God, look at what I'm doing. Aren't you pleased with me? Doesn't that kind of lift me a little higher in this, this, this growth process? So that's all merit-based Christianity. When all those tools of growth in Christ are there as avenues of growth, simply doing them does not mean that growth is taking place. So friends, our standing before God is not based on what we do. It, it is based on what Christ has done on our behalf. So we don't say, God, look at me because of what I've done. We say, God, thank you for your grace showered on me because of what Jesus has done. It is Christ who paid the price for our salvation, not us. It is the Godhead who chose us in Christ before the earth was created, not the other way around. We are the recipients of grace, not the earners of it. See, Grace can be perverted so easily. And this is quite an example of it. And so then David now speaks. David responds to these worthless fellows. And we see here David's wisdom on display. Notice verse 23. But David said, you shall not do so. My brothers. Here's a tender leader. Even speaking to worthless and wicked fellows who are caught up in this way. All right, just, just a reminder even when, when God's people respond in the flesh, does not mean that we need to respond in the flesh. Here's David responding still kindly. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this. So notice what he's saying. He's saying the spoil is a gift from the Lord. It isn't just for those who go into battle, it's for everyone involved. We'll all share alike. And isn't that the way of the kingdom of God? God doesn't say, well, you've got more goodness in you. You've done more things. I'm going to take you, and you're, you're, going to, you're going to get this heaven ticket. But over there, you're not going to do it. No, he says, my grace is sufficient for everyone who comes repenting of their sin based on what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. We are all the recipients of his grace in the same way. We are all beneficiaries of the righteousness of Christ that has been placed on us. We are all been given these spiritual blessings in heavenly places, which the book of Ephesians tells us. There's no segregation to God's grace among his people. 
His grace is liberal. His grace is free. The avenue in is through the cross. The avenue in is through responding to what Jesus Christ has done on that cross by virtue of repentance and faith in Christ and what he has done. So we don't have to prove to God how good we are to receive grace. We are simple sinners, knowing we deserve death, but resting on and trusting in the good news of the gospel that Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Any grace we receive is totally and completely God's doing. See, merit, perverted grace, says I'm getting this grace because I did something. God's grace comes by his decision and his gift. So now we see what I'm calling grace applied, and probably this is my favorite part of the story. The way David behaves next is probably the most significant part of the story, just to see how he's grown up to be the leader Saul never could be. And remember, it's likely that David is stepping up here in this leadership while Saul is falling on his sword. And notice how selfless, caring, and gracious David is in taking care of his God-given flock. Verse 26, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of of the enemies of the Lord. And he sends these gifts to all these different places. And it says, these are all places, at the end of there, verse 31, all places where David and his men had roamed. It's like he's saying, listen, you have helped us, you have endured us, and I'm gonna be liberal now to give you the gifts that God has provided for us. These are the enemies of the Lord. This is their stuff, but now I'm gonna share the wealth among you. He is a leader turning into a king. Not a king consumed with himself, but a king consumed with God and his people under his care. It's a powerful story, isn't it? And now we have to ask ourselves as we bring this all to a close, has David passed the test? Has he endured the crucible to the point where he now would get his pin, so to speak. It would appear so. But we must be careful. As much as we admire David's leadership to the point of wanting to follow his example, and I'm looking at this as a pastor and as a leader saying, I, I want to be like this. We must not miss David's counsel to us. The real culprit behind David's success is the Lord his God, and that screams to us from this passage. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. David inquired of the Lord, and he attributed the success of the day to the Lord. He says, this is what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us. See, even David, the one who is exercising wisdom, who's exercising skill, who's using his abilities, recognizes that all of that ultimately comes from the Lord his God. So chapter 30, friends, is a testimony to the growth of David as a leader 
and as the Lord's anointed, but it is far more a testimony to the Lord his God who has been faithful to David through his wilderness wanderings and in particular to the events of these days. So I think we could write over the David account so far in 1 Samuel these words, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Because that is what has taken place. God has been and is continuing to be faithful to David. So as we reflect then on this chapter, I, I, there's, there's really five conclusions. They all are very similar here. But it's, a, it's just a way to walk through this chapter again, but from a different perspective. First of all, I want to say this. God is faithful even in our disappointments. It is, I think, a, a right understanding right possibility, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly, that when David went to Aphek with the Philistine army, that his intentions actually were to somehow be involved by turning against the Philistines in the midst of that battle. But the commanders of the Philistines, you know what, they, they saw him and said, uh-uh, we're not having that. And so his journey away, although we could say it's God's deliverance, was also a disappointment to him because he had a plan in motion. And God wants us to plan, but sometimes our plans do not bear fruit. Sometimes they're turned upside down. But God is faithful even in our disappointments. So you miss out on that house. You don't get that job. You talk with your teenager or spouse, or, and it just doesn't go well. It goes sour. Remember, God is still faithful. That never changes. Secondly, God is faithful in our distresses. Things went from bad to worse, didn't they? And we can rightly say that God is faithful when things get worse and worse and worse. The extent of the worseness does not change the reality that God is faithful. That's our own framework, but God's framework is I'm still faithful. I'm still here. I'm still working my will. So from a lion to a bear to a snake, God is faithful. Number three, God is faithful in our discernment. When we need guidance from God, he's faithful to give us entrance to him by virtue of his word and prayer. Now usually, friends, the fruit of that is a couple things. The fruit of that time in the word and prayer is that my heart is changed about what I'm facing. And so I'm conforming myself to God's purposes. You know, I, I have plans and, and I have struggles and, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on, but God then through his word and through prayer changes my perspective on those plans. Changes my perspective on my situation. The second thing that happens is there's counsel in the form of specific principles that will help me assess the situation more effectively. And the result of that then is the ability to apply God's truth to my situation, biblical wisdom, the application of God's truth skillfully to my situation. And friends, in all of that is a faithful God who's speaking to us through his word and the interaction of prayer, who's guiding us to help us sort out the things that are going on in our hearts and he's realigning us to say, you know what, I'm holding on to you, God. And I don't know exactly what's ahead of me, but I know that you have promises that are gonna lead me on. And even then, 
he brings providential things to happen. Why? Because he is faithful to his children. God is also faithful in our deliverance. God doesn't guarantee deliverance from your particular trial. Can I just say that again? God doesn't guarantee deliverance from your particular trial. Sometimes deliverance comes in the form of learning how to cope in your particular trial. Or learning that God is gonna work his will in some way that you don't understand through that particular trial. But it's all part of God's sovereign plan and his deliverance ultimately will come. So we can live our lives, even our trials, with the promise of ultimate deliverance. We live in light of eternity in heaven. See, we have the confidence that, yes, we are in this world, and if we are gonna be honest about this world, we're gonna say because this world is an ungodly, sinful place, there are gonna be all sorts of difficulties we're gonna face. And as soon as we might get through our particular trial today, there'll be new trials ahead of us, right? But what anchors us to say, God, I'm gonna trust you, is that he is consistently faithful, but the promise is that one day we are gonna step away from this world into the presence of heaven. And that is ultimate deliverance. And that is, that is an assurance, friends, that helps us find our strength for today, for now. And so we live in light of heaven and the promise of that reality in our lives. Finally, God is faithful in our delights. See, we usually think of God's faithfulness when we're in difficulty or somehow facing uphill battles, but we must also recognize that even in God's goodness, he is faithful. He is not a God who measures us by our merit. So we need to stop trying to impress him, thinking that the more I do X, Y, and Z, the more he will bless me. Friends, that is bondage. He gives to all men who trust him freely and liberally. Why? Because he is a faithful God. I want you to walk out of here today not thinking, wow, David's a really cool leader. I want you to walk out saying, what a faithful God we have. He's faithful to David. The circumstances were unique because he was God's anointed, but he's also faithful to me in all the same ways that I may face life. God has a purpose for you individually. He has a purpose for me, but he will always remain faithful. Lord, help us today to consider this encouragement or to consider even the suffering and the trial and the depths of despair that David had to go through and yet to see the big picture of the fact that even in the midst of that trial and despair that you had not abandoned him and Lord, you do not abandon us. You don't guarantee, Lord, that we will be drop lifted out of our trial and difficulty but you do promise, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are with us, that you are aware and that you're sovereign and Lord, we, we rest on those promises. We, 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 we find ourselves settling into those promises during those times of difficulty and trial. May we see you as the great God you are. And we, may we be reminded consistently of your great faithfulness to us. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.